0: Good morning, let's take our Bibles this morning and again turn to the Gospel of Mark. We are looking at Mark chapter ten, verse seventeen through twenty seven Of course, uh the most profitable way that you look uh, study the scripture is if you're following along with me in your Bibles and uh, looking at the passages uh along with me. So you're making sure that I'm not saying things that are not there, all right? And then you're learning also. But as we come to this passage of scripture, I was doing, um, just thinking about what is being said here. Uh, This is about the rich young ruler, as it's called, and um, I looked up some articles on, um, actually one man wrote named Chris... Chris York, who wrote an uh, op-ed piece on the horror of lottery stories. In fact, I was amazed to find out that um, they actually have Lottery Winners Anonymous because of how money, wealth, has actually destroyed people. Uh, And some of the people wrote, uh, actually, Chris York said, we all dream of winning the lottery. Of course, we, as Christians, we, we shouldn't be playing the lottery. Uh, we need to trust God for those kind of things. But he says that uh, you think that there's no more debt, there's endless holidays and a ridiculous, large, and unwarranted collection of whatever takes your fancy. And he says, but one r- winner said... Everybody dreams of winning money, but nobody realizes the nightmares that come out of the woodwork or the problems. And so he cites some stories from California to Pennsylvania to Texas to New Jersey. And he said one story he wrote, uh, he said now, now there is a story of uh, justice, actually he called it karmic justice, uh, where... In 1996, Denise Rossi won $1.3 million on the California lottery. Instead of informing her husband of 25 years, Thomas, she applied for divorce instead. Denise then kept her winning secret during the entire court proceedings. Three years later, though, the truth came out and the court ruled that she had violated the state asset disclosure law. Her punishment... She was to or, be ordered to pay every single penny of her winnings to her ex-husband. Then, of course, William Budd Post won sixteen point two million in a Pennsylvania lottery in 1998, which is about as he said everything started to go wrong. First, all uh, a former girlfriend sued him for a share of the winnings, and then his brother hired a hitman to kill him. It didn't didn't help matters when he fired a shotgun at a man who was trying to collect a debt, and then, of course, everything rapidly deteriorated, and Post died broke in 2006. And then even right here in New Jersey, uh, Evelyn Adams hit the jackpot in 1985 and 86, bagging a total of $5.4 Fast forward 20 years, though, and she was living in a trailer, completely broke. And then um, Abraham Shakespeare won $17 million, a lump sum in 2006, at the age of 40, he was deluged by people asking for financial help and he couldn't say no to them even when he bought a new home he had the homeless live in his home and then he met a woman named uh doris dungan called Dee, and she soon uh met him and started going with him and then shakespeare all of a, all of a sudden disappeared his body was found under a slab behind a home owned by D.D. D. Moore, shot two times. Moore was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. And then one last one happened in Tex- Texas. Billy Bob Harrell won $31 million on a Texas lotto. And at first, he thought his problems were over. He quit his job, gave as much money as he, he could to help the poor and the needy, and eventually he became more and more hassled by people demanding money from him, having to change his phone number several times. The pressure of this combined with separating from his wife were just too much for him, and he was found dead by his son with a self-inflicted head wound just two years after his winning. Now, all these stories conclude with really a sad ending. But the one recorded right here in our text this morning is sadder than all of them. Because this man let slip away eternal treasure for temporal wealth. So, this morning I want you to take a look at The man in our story who rejected the key to eternal life for earthly riches. And that's where we're at today in Mark chapter 10, verse number 17 onward. And before I go there, let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at the Word of God, we realize that in it, Lord, is contained the wisdom that comes from above. It is not tainted with earthly wisdom. And so, Lord, it is your truth. Lord, help us today to take it to heart. Help us to put ourselves in this equation. And, Lord, I pray that we would be cautioned by it and that at the end, Lord, we would actually turn and be thankful for all that you have given to us and be content with the lot that you have placed us in in this world. So, Lord, let us learn the key to eternal life today. In Christ's name, amen. So let us look first at Jesus' inquirer in verse number 17 of chapter 10 of Mark. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us that this man was a ruler. He was a ruler in the synagogue. An official that manages the affairs of the local synagogue. He was a young man, somewhere between the ages of 24 and 40, some place around 28 years old. He's wealthy. And he is often referred to in Scripture as the rich young ruler. I want you to notice also the inquirer's thoughtful question. He comes with a question. I say that he comes with the question. Hoping, of course, to obtain the needed information to satisfy his quest, to get his question answered. And notice what his question is. In verse number 17, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you have to say, wow, talk about an evangelistic prospect. Don't you want people walking up to you saying, excuse me, uh, I have a question for you. Uh, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? To any Christian, that would be yes, prayer is answered, right? This is, this is an easy one. Well, if we take a closer look at what the young man asks, and I want you to notice he is not asking how he may obtain eternal life. He's asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, the word inherit here because of the context could mean something that a person receives that is due them because of the good behavior or the good things they did to that person while in this life. That in the inheritance they get something because of what they gave. What they did. So He thinks he's on the right path. He has been following the moral law with strict behavior and obedience. He is asking, what else must I do? That's key to the text. He has a knowing sense that he's missing something. But at the same time, he thinks he has the ability to reach the goal to inherit eternal life, and he sees the good teacher, Jesus, that possibly he can tell me what else I need to do. The young man wants eternal life, and he thinks he can obtain it by doing something else, by doing something good. This young man is really an analogous to many young men, who have come after him expressing similar uneasiness. For example, here's a, a, take a young man who has it all together. He has degrees from the right places. Uh, He's on a, a track to be a partner in a company. And he's already made millions by the age of 28. Yet, to his surprise he finds himself seeking out gurus and rabbis and religious teachers asking them am i missing something do you know of anything i'm missing i've accomplished a lot but i sense that there is more one more thing that i need to do i'm willing to make some changes so tell me what to do obviously in many of these cases, wealth doesn't seem to satisfy the uneasiness people have in their heart. There's a restlessness that's still going on there, no matter how much money that they obtained in this world. So what is the inquirer's sincere attitude towards Jesus? Notice in verse number 17, he says, Good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So his approach to Jesus seems admirable. Because he he comes eagerly, he comes respectfully, he comes with an attitude of great reverence for Jesus. And Jesus' reply to him in verse number 18 is this. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, so Jesus is not saying here that he's not good, that he himself is not good. The word good is used in a common sense. And it can be applied to all kinds of people. See, our definition of goodness, in other words, is different. Depends on what context you're you're looking at. People say, well, he's a good person. Well, why is he good? Because he gives to the poor. Or he's a good person. Why? He's good because he is good to his family. So if we apply the common sense goodness to Jesus, that would be a cheap application to him. It would not fit him. Goodness in the true sense of the word can only apply to God. That's what Jesus is saying. God is good. God is the very source of life and salvation. God is the standard of what one who is truly good would be. Understood in this way, Jesus is actually affirming his deity. Just in my Bible reading this past week, I ran across Psalm 136, verse 1, and it simply says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good right and matter of fact whole psalms are given to the very character of god's goodness in fact when we grow in respect to our salvation in peter we are to grow to the point where we see the goodness of god in our life it's the goodness of god that brings someone to repentance so it's all over the place it applies to god very nicely but when we switch it over to humans, the definition becomes dubious. Now, Jesus' method of dealing with this thoughtful inquirer is very interesting. It's fact, in fact, it is a method we ought to use in our evangelism. All right. So what did Jesus actually do to this young man? He actually brought his attention upon the law of God. So, he directed him, in other words, to the law. Why did he use the law? Because the law is like shooting at someone's conscience. It goes right to the very heart of the matter. In fact, this rich young ruler had a flawed understanding of goodness. He is understanding goodness as a moral achievement, a moral attainment some moral accomplishment that he has to do in his life. He has been successful at doing good things. Moralism, actually, today is the new gospel. Moralism produces sinners who are, of course, better behaved, but not saved, but call themselves Christians. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God and makes them different. The church then must never evade or accommodate or revise or hide the law of God because it is the law of God that shows us our sin. It is the law of God that makes us our inadequacy and our righteousness lacking before a holy God. So Jesus starts with the law, and he does that for this reason, in order to lead that person to the gospel. And so look what he says in verse number 19. This is what he says to the young man. Look, you know the commandments. He already knows the man knows the commandments. So Jesus wants this young man, this successful, wealthy man, to have a real understanding of the purpose of the law. So Jesus cites five negative commandments and one positive commandment for a total of six commandments from the second tablet of the law. Remember, there was two tablets the first tablet, and the second tablet. The first tablet was more directed towards God and worshiping him, and the second was more about the sins of man that condemned them. So by referring to several of the Ten Commandments, Jesus asks him some implicit questions. He says, you know the commandments, so what does he do? He starts out in verse number 19, and he says, Do not murder. That's commandment number six. But if you think about that commandment, he's asking here, have you ever not only killed somebody, but have you ever been angry with anyone? Because murder starts in the heart with anger. And then commandment seven, do not not commit adultery. All right? Have you ever looked on a woman to lust after her? Have you ever done that? And then in commandment number eight, do not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? Even petty theft. And then commandment number nine, do not bear false witness. Have you ever given false testimony? Lied once. Have you lied once? And then in commandment number ten, he says, it's interesting, there's a change here, the way it's recorded, because commandment number ten is thou shalt not covet. But notice what's recorded here. It says in in the passage, do not defraud. Now, that, of course, is directly connected to, because most people believed that if you you were wealthy, somewhere down the line, you defrauded someone. So, in other words, it's like saying, it it does also mean thou shalt not covet. That is in there, but this is specific to this man. Jesus is getting right to the heart of the matter. Have you ever misrepresented the facts in business dealings? Have you ever taken from people things that are by right theirs? Have you ever had a jealous desire for what is not yours? And then, of course, he gives a positive command, and it's commandment number five. Honor your father and mother. Have you always obeyed and respected your parents? So he lays it out before him. And so the law is designed to expose the man to himself and to his deficiencies. That's what the law does to all of us, right? When the law is applied to us, we can't get away from the law because everybody is guilty of something. And that's exactly why God designed it that way. But I want you to notice in verse number 20 after he lays out the commandments to him the response of the man he said to him, teacher I have kept all these things from my youth up. Would you say there's a problem in that statement? Well, I don't think the man thought there was a problem in that statement because that's exactly what he's been doing since he's been a kid. He heard the law He said, okay, I'm supposed to obey the law. I'm supposed to keep the law. So that's what I'm going to do. But what happened is that as it happens to many of us, he got caught on just one side of the law. See, the young man is sure that he has kept these from his youth, but what he did not see is that he was actually establishing himself as a self-righteous person. And he thought in his mind, God is satisfied and God is pleased with what I'm doing. Now just think for a moment, just think for a moment. This young man is outwardly an exemplary young man. He could easily be praised or taken as an example by others. Employers are looking for men just like him. Moral, religious, a proud son, a leader among the gathered assembly, a wealthy person in the community that can help out. Who wouldn't like a young man with these qualities to marry their daughter or to be an employee in their business or to be an elder and deacon in their church? See, the point being is this. The young man outwardly kept the commandments but failed to grasp that the law is also spiritual. What what does Paul say, the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 7? This is what he said when he's dealing with that complex passage of Scripture. But he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual. And then he says this, But I am of flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. That the law is put out there for it to expose our heart, to bring everything that's going in our heart, on in our heart to the surface, especially the sin that's offensive to God. So here's the man of a, a clear proclamation of self-righteousness has no problem with it. And you would think, Let's see what Jesus' attitude is toward that rich man, rich young ruler. Look what it says in verse number 21. Here's the first thing that Jesus, how Jesus responded to him. He says in verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. Now that's interesting. That is, that is a very interesting. We we really all should be taken By how Jesus replied to this rich young ruler, and in this passage, it really it says that he felt compassion. He felt love. That means there was compassion there. And remember from the Gospel of Mark, compassion always sees a need and then plans to take care of that need. That's what Jesus is doing here. All right, there actually are several words in the Koine New Testament Greek. Uh, that could be translated with the word love. However, the term used here is a word that we've often heard before, agapato, agapao, or agape, which means a divine love or a godly love. So in other words, Jesus is expressing towards this man a divine, godly love. And of course, you may have thought that Jesus would have come down on him, for his self-righteous response, but he didn't. But at this point, it says Jesus felt love for him. It's in a similar way, Paul says in the epistle to the Romans, in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's interesting that God's love is most clearly demonstrated at the point of our sinfulness and our ungodliness and our unholiness, and usually under the shadow of the cross, the cross being the greatest demonstration of God's love to humanity, that he died in their place for their sin, not for his own. So he Felt love, but then in the rest of the passage, it, told, it tells us how he expressed that love. Remember, love is an action word. It's a verb here. That means there's going to be action involved with that. It's not just, I loved them; I felt love. No, he did something. And what does he do? And sometimes this is where we think it's unloving to tell somebody that they're sinners. Well, how does Jesus express love to them? By telling him what he lacks. Right? By telling him what he lacks. By telling him what he must do, because that's what he wanted. So, what he does is he applies the law to expose his sin. God applies, the love of God applies the law. And after he had done what was required, then. He will prove it by following Christ. So, Jesus wanted this man by the application of the law first, as I believe the Scripture wants us to understand, also to understand that you cannot obtain eternal life by the law or by keeping it. All right? You can't do it. And secondly, to understand all that the law can do for you is to show you You're a sinner under God's condemnation. So, see, the law brings to the surface of the heart that which you cannot see or fail to recognize. As, again, Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Romans, because by the works of the flesh, no flesh, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law, comes what? The knowledge of sin. All right, Paul said in Romans how do I know if I covet unless the law tells me I covet, right? How do I know that this is wrong unless the law told me it was wrong and not pleasing to the Lord and brings its own just condemnation? See, the law makes demands upon our thoughts, upon our feelings, upon our attitudes, and upon our intentions, upon our will. The law brings pain deep within the soul. The law places its weight on the most darling sins of the heart. Don't we have darling sins? We have sins that are secret and we cherish. We we like them. We don't even let other people know about them. It's only our private little thing. And we think that as long as we do something in private, we don't hurt anybody else Wrong. Because we're already offending God. All sin offends God. Whether it's actually lived out or just thought, it's still sin before God. So, in other words, Jesus, in love, places his finger on the rich man's most darling sin and applies a spiritual application from the Ten Commandments, specifically saying to him, you shall not covet, and of course recorded here in the Scripture, do not defraud. So Jesus applies really four imperatives to bring the man's heart and what's going on in it to the surface. Because if you notice in verse 21, it says this, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, one thing you lack and this is what he says, all imperatives, go and sell, it's a command, all, possess, all you possess, secondly, give to the poor, and you will receive treasure in heaven, and then, when you're done with that, follow me. Now you say, well, why did he do that? He's not asking us all to give away our wealth. That's not the point. The point is that this man's sin is preventing him from having eternal life. The question that he originally asked. So, Jesus is taking practically the law and applying it to that one sin. The sin that's really preventing him from going forward. See, this application of the law brought to the surface the filth and the ugliness of sin. See, in other words, covetousness has ruled this young man's soul. That's what he lives his life for. The practical test of the Ten Commandments, which Jesus applied to the rich young ruler, is the demand to abandon his riches, to give it to the poor, and then to follow him, follow Jesus, the rest of his life. Had, had Jesus simply said to him, "Do not covet, the rich man probably would have said i have i satis- 'm satisfied with the lot you gave me, the situation you've given me in life i 'm satisfied, but that 's not what Jesus did. Jesus put his finger on the man 's chief sin, and Jesus pressed his finger there and when jesus and Jesus went for the heart of his problem because the heart of his problem was his devotion to his wealth instead of his devotion to God. See, to be saved from covetousness, people must turn from the all-consuming passion after wealth, his love for money, in other words, must be removed. His affections for that particular thing and trust in it must be removed if he's to be saved. This fine prospect of a man was called out by the law. And the law found him to be a rebel against a holy God and dreadfully sold out to Satan in covetousness. If he repented, if you notice in verse number 21, there's a promise. Then he would find true riches. Look what it says. You will have treasure in heaven. So if you do this, if you give go and sell, if you give it to the poor, and if you follow me, you will have treasure in heaven. The Lord is offering to him eternal treasure that doesn't rust or decay or get lost. Now you would think a man of this stature would say, yes, that's what I want. But there's a condition placed on having treasure in heaven. And that condition is repentance. Repentance is a change of mind towards sin, self, and the Savior. It's like when the Gospel went to the Thessalonians. It says it was reported about them and how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So he must turn his back on his green God to have treasure in heaven all his works righteousness are vain they're empty they mean nothing what he needs is a complete inward change so the young man is so attracted to jesus yet so far away from how he should enter the kingdom of god he didn't see past his earthly treasure he didn't see heavenly treasure more desirable than earthly treasure nor did he see the need to continue to follow Christ, which would have been evidence of true saving faith. See, confession of sin for this man and anyone is really not enough. There must be also a full purpose of heart to turn from the former life of sin and to walk in new righteousness, to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. So for salvation, the young ruler must be determined to forsake as well as confess his sin. So here we we see he is quite willing to have Christ. He's quite willing to have eternal life, but he is not willing to forsake his riches. You can't have both. Now looking at it in this way from Scripture, then we we see that how does the rich young ruler actually respond to the felt love and the practical love of Christ, where Christ showed him what was wrong? Well, in verse number 22, it tells us. But before I look at that, see, salvation actually eludes this successful young man. See, he didn't want to turn from that which he loved. Even though now he was no longer blinded. He wasn't blinded to his own sin anymore of covetousness. The law of God had made it known to him. He was well aware of what Jesus was saying. And so he actually gives a wrong response. Not the response that an evangelist wants to hear. When somebody comes and asks you the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not the answer after you presented the, gospel, the law and then the gospel to that person. This is not the answer you want to receive. So how could this prime evangelistic candidate slip away? We would think we can't let this person slip away. We've got to say something to him. He came to the right person he came with the right question how do i, I inherit eternal life so, but he got it and look at the response to jesus application of the law verse number 22 but as these word but at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. In other words, this man was extremely wealthy. He turned away from Jesus with a sad, gloomy, grieved heart. Jesus exposed what he really loved and worshipped. He loved his riches more than he loved God or his Son. He was not only guilty of violation of the commandments, or specifically commandment number 10, you shall not covet or you shall not defraud, he was also guilty of the first commandment, which is not even listed in our text. You shall have no other gods before me. See, in other words, he was deficient in love for God. Therefore, guilty of breaking the whole law. And you know what James chapter 2, verse 10 says, and whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. That means nobody's going to get away. Nobody can slip out of that one. You're guilty, I'm guilty. Under the law, we are guilty and under the law's condemnation for the wages of sin is what? Death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death if we don't believe in christ so he was deficient of the love of god but he was also deficient in keeping all that the law depends everything that the law hangs on what is that well remember in matthew 22 where it's a a question was asked to jesus teacher what is the great commandment in the law And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. See, so soon as a person walks away from God, they are also committing an eternal sin that's the sin that is unpardonable that's the sin in which the person can't be rescued unless of course unless they have they have breath in their lungs and the blood still flowing through their veins then there's a possibility that the spirit of god may convict them again but see when somebody walks away see our lord was urging the young rich man to abandon his philosophy of life but he did not this goes to show one great obstacle of salvation in this world is the love of riches not riches themselves but the love of them and you don't need to be wealthy to love money You can be poor as dirt and love money the whole life. Matter of fact, your whole motive of living is to get money, but you never got it. In Proverbs, it tells us that sometimes God allows people to be rich and not have the joy to enjoy the riches. And some people, God allows to be poor and enjoy it because they're content with what the Creator had given them. So there is ample admonition in Scripture concerning the power money has to entrap us because all people have a secret longing for riches of some kind, don't they? Would you say that all people have a longing for riches of some kind in this life? I would say they do, right? Oh, if I only won the lottery, if I only had this amount of money, I can do this and I can do that, and I would give to that person, of course. I would be the, But you know what the richer people get? The less they give. That's a, that's a proven fact. The Apostle Paul told young pastor, Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee these things, O you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. See, the same apostle also gave us a heads up to those who will live in the last days. Because those days that we live in now, filled with the foolish mindset of atheism, and false teaching, people's affections are being pulled in all kinds of directions. And their affections are on certain objects. And one of the objects that men's affections are on is money, wealth. For he says in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 2 to 4, but it says, listen, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he says they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in the Epistle of Hebrews, this is the counsel that's given to us in Hebrews 13:5. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In other words, Christ is enough. He is our wealth. Well, in saying all that, the rich man walks away from Christ. He walks away because his love for his possessions and his wealth, is he sees it as greater than what Christ offered him. And not only that, he missed Christ. He missed Christ as the one who is the one who gives wealth. And so now Jesus turns to his apostles, he turns to his disciples, and he has some comments about what just happened. And this is his comments, and I want you to notice, first, first uh, verses 23 to 27, he makes comments on the, really, the rich young ruler's response. And notice what he says, this is what he says to them. Listen, getting into the kingdom of God is harder than you think. That's what he says to his disciples. Look how he says it in verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the Lord did not deny the possibility that the rich person can be saved. Jesus simply said that it was difficult. And remember, the term kingdom of God refers to the present spiritual kingdom composed of the regenerate people of God, when it's using the kingdom of God. Those who believed in Christ and have entered, who've seen the kingdom and who have entered the kingdom, right? And they have done it through Christ. They had to go through Christ. So salvation is very desirable. Eternal life is very desirable, and it's necessary. But how difficult it is to obtain, right? The difficulty really lies in the pride in people's hearts. They don't think they need it. They got their own plan. I'm doing all right. I'm fine. Your religion is just a crutch. You, You just go on. You're happy in your little thing. I got my little thing over here. All right? So it's pride that keeps them from it. The difficulty lies in the area of falling in line with God's way of saving us. See, salvation by grace as a free gift troubles us. That just seems too simple. Receive a free gift. I don't have to do anything for it. No work. not to pay for nothing. See, it troubles sinful humanity. The difficulty lies in complying with God's terms of salvation. We don't believe it's true. We don't believe it's true that we can be saved, that we can have eternal life, that there's even a quality of life after this life. We don't believe it. People are getting very cynical in that area today, more than I've ever seen in my life. I just die like a common animal. This life is over. So enjoy as you can, and then you're dead. That's it. They they forgot that they have a soul created in the image of God that lives for eternity. That's who they really are. And they're going to have to stand before God and, and, and give an account of their life. And God keeps accurate records. And the law is out there. The law is written in their hearts. They already know they've done things wrong. They have already know they sinned against the Creator. They know that without even reading the Bible or hearing the law. It's there. They have a conscience. Conscience is going to be part of how God judges us. The law, of the conscience, the Word, Jesus Christ himself are going to be the standard of judgment of all people. See, so the difficulty lies in the seeking and accepting such a salvation that God offers. They think there's many ways to God. You have one, I have one. We all make it to the same place. The difficulty is in, in the power of sin and what sin delights in. And people think that salvation crucifies all the sinful, delightful desires that they would ever live out, which it does. But Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7, it does not, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's saying to the disciples after the rich man walks away, listen, getting into the kingdom of God is harder than you think, but he goes one step further. And notice what he says in verse 24 and 25. And here's what he says to them in a nutshell. Getting into the kingdom of God is not just hard. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, of course, remember, Mark is writing as if you're there. And you're listening to Jesus. So you, you, the whole thing went on. You saw what happened with the rich ruler. Said and while I walked away, and how the law was applied. They saw all that, and now they're they're waiting for the teacher to say something. And the teacher says to them, turns to them and says, "Listen, the kingdom of God is harder than you think." And then he says to them, "Listen, the kingdom of God is not just hard. It's impossible to get into. You cannot get into it." What he says in verse number. 24 and he gives an illustration and he says this verse 24 and 25 the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus answered again and said to them children that's a term of endearment he's now really looking th- to them as his children and he says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of god and then verse number 25 he seals it and he says this it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And believe me, some people have said the eye of the needle is, is called the you know the needle gate where a camel couldn't fit through it. This is this is a regular needle. The needles were bigger because they sewed uh leather tents together. But obviously a camel can't fit through the eye of a needle, right? In other words, it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, getting into the kingdom of God is humanly an impossible mission. The rich man, even with all the resources of his wealth, cannot muster enough to get into heaven. In other words, he can do nothing toward being saved or entering the kingdom of God. So the illustration of the camel is absolutely true. With men, this thing of being saved and entrance into the kingdom of God is impossible. You can do nothing for it. Man can do absolutely nothing toward his own salvation. Natural ability... If he had it, he cannot work for it. Not with wealth, he cannot buy it. Not works of charity, charity cannot gain him eternal life. Not moralism, can't try to be good enough to get into it. How much good can you be to be enter the kingdom of God? When God says in Romans, there's none good. No, not one. Not synergism. That means... You cannot even cooperate with God for your salvation. In other words, we can do nothing. That's the point. We can do nothing but by, prayer, by, but by repentance and faith in Christ and receive the free gift of eternal life. See, the king doesn't sell his flowers. The king gives them out freely. Only to be received freely, not to be paid for. I always loved this passage of scripture in John chapter 1 where it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, were born again by imperishable seed that comes. From God. It is an astonishing thing to think, to realize that the reality of salvation and the process of it is a gift of God alone, including, of course, the grace of God and our choice even to believe in that grace is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Real Christians are persuaded that the finished work of Christ is sufficient and nothing else is needed. Do you believe that today? that this salvation that God's offering cannot be worked for. You can do nothing for it. Except God's prescription. That salvation, then we must conclude, is a supernatural work of God. Eternal life is life that is in Christ. That's why we must come to Christ. And salvation was never, ever intended to be man's work. Never. In all of God's word, it was never that intention. That's the intention. We give it. So, the key to eternal life is the miraculous intervention of God alone. That's the key. And that's what's said in verse 26 and 27. Notice what it says in Mark 10. In verse 26, it says, they were... were, even more astonished, and said to him, then who can be saved? That should be our question after what was said. And then notice what it says. Looking at them, Jesus says, with people it is impossible, but with God, but with God, for all things are possible with God. See, God is the agent that makes what is impossible, possible. And of course, we know that anyone who comes to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he will in no wise cast out. Because that's his remedy. That's his prescription on how we do come. So then, who can be saved? Certainly not those who neglect the means of salvation. Certainly not those who prefer other things before it and love other things before God. Certainly not those who think to attain it any other way than God's appointed way will get in. Who can be saved? Certainly those who have been appointed to it. Certainly those who who do not neglect the means of salvation, certainly those who desire His offer, certainly those who do not prefer other things in its place, certainly those who attain it the way God appointed it. Anybody who comes in that way can be saved. Because remember, the human obligation was to hear the gospel and obey the two imperatives That we started out with in Mark chapter 1. When the preaching of the gospel comes. And that the time of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is at hand. The Bible says there's two things. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn from something. And turn to someone. And that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that he's able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through him. See Christ is God, and consequently sovereign Lord over all things, and as such is the object of saving faith. Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, Man believes resulting in righteousness. So this scripture this morning really should do several things to us. Number one, it should humble us. Humble us to know that we can't offer anything to God to save us. Secondly, it should caution us. And caution us in this sense. We should not rush to bring someone faith if they don't know yet they sinned against God. And the only way to show them that is to present the law. To bring the law to press upon their hearts so they would know, oh, now that's why I need to be saved. is because I sinned against God who created me. See, unless they understand that, there's no salvation. What do you need to be saved for? You don't see your sin. So we should be cautioned how we talk to people about the gospel. But we should talk to people about the gospel. And then it should cause us to not walk away like the rich young ruler sad, or like the people I mentioned in the beginning who had all this money, but all their life ended in tragedy and sadness. But we should walk away this morning rejoicing for this reason. For the so great salvation that has been offered to us freely in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's why we should rejoice. We will have an eternal inheritance in Christ. And as it says in verse number 21, if you want to go back there, it says this, You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me that's the promise that we have if you come to Christ you have treasure in heaven you, you don't believe it that you're the wealthiest people on this earth if you know Christ because you're joint heirs with him what he owns you own that's hard to that's hard to wrap your mind around i know i can't wrap my mind around it either but it's nonetheless true because it says it in the word of god and then i want you to notice and when i get there but look at look at Matthew chapter 10 in verse number 30 it says this but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and the age to come eternal life and then verse 31 but many who are first will be last and last first See, the promise there of the disciples asked the question, but Lord, we left family, we left houses, we left towns, we left everything. What about us? And the Lord's saying, don't worry about you. You've got riches that you don't even know about. And I promise you that. You may be last now, but you'll be first in the kingdom of God. You may be poor now, but you'll be rich in the kingdom of God. And for one reason, because people just simply came to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who died in their place, who rose again to give them eternal life, who defeated Satan in death, who's interceding for them right now on their behalf, and who promised that he's going to take us to be with him when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, or we're going to actually be here when he comes. I don't know that. God does. But see, our our futures are bright who know Christ. And so... This is a tremendous passage of Scripture that should, we should remember and think about often in our life, especially when we're tempted to think something can satisfy you more than God, and your affections go swinging in another direction. Pray every day that your affections for the Lord grow deeper and deeper and deeper so you're not swayed by anything. And you are steadfast and strong in the Lord, no matter what takes place in your life. Because God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. And he can be trusted. And he is our Lord and Savior. And he is also our wealth. He is our treasure. Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, this passage of Scripture does touch our hearts it does reach down to the depth of our souls it does show us Lord that Lord even when you got everything going for you and even though you have everything the world can offer that one thing could cause you to miss eternal life because you end up loving it instead of Christ I pray, Lord, that you would show us, convict us of our sin. Show those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. Show them that they're responsible and guilty before you. And if they don't come and repent and trust in Christ, they too will be under eternal condemnation and have no reward but will be left in darkness and eternal torment. And I pray, Lord, those who do know you I pray, Lord, every day all of us would rejoice and be content in the things that you have given us. For we know, Lord, in Christ Jesus we are wealthy and that our inheritance is eternal. It cannot be taken away. We cannot lose it. It is reserved for us in heaven, as Peter said. And I thank you, Lord, for the truth that sets us free and allows us to live with a peace and a joy that nothing else in this world can give but you. And so I thank you, Lord, for these things. Bring those who don't know you to Christ, and those who do know you, establish them in your joy and peace every day. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.